All right. It's summer, but school's coming, so we're going to begin with a pop quiz. I know, I'm evil. Here's the quiz. Is this in the Bible true or false, right? So, I mean, we're in this fun series, say, what? That's really in the Bible? So here's a quiz. Adam and Eve sinned when they ate the apple. Is that in the Bible? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, let's see, what's the next question? Uh, I wrote it. Oh, right. Three wise men visited Jesus at the manger. True, false, false. Hmm. Uh, let's see here. Jonah was swallowed by a whale. True. Okay. Uh, money is the root of all evil. I'm hearing some of both. Okay. Uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. Mostly, I heard false. Okay. Uh, love the sinner, hate the sin. God will not give you more than you can handle. Okay, okay. Oh, I heard some true. True, false. Okay. Um, God helps those who help themselves. Some true, some false. I think, that, I think that's all in this. Let's see. Uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, they were all false. None of those are in the Bible. Some of those you might claim are true, but a lot, those are, none of those are actually in the Bible. Adam and Eve, they ate fruit, but not necessarily an apple. The Bible never says, right? Um, three men, three wise men, we have no idea how many there were, and they didn't visit him in the manger. They came to a house as long as maybe two years later. So that's one of those, right? We look at the little nativity scene. We're like, oh, three, you know, no. Uh, Jonah was swallowed by a big fish, not a whale. Maybe it was a whale, right? Money is the root of all evil. A lot of people said that's true. No, the Bible teaches money is the root of all kinds of evil. But it's actually not money. It's the love of money. So money isn't, but the love of money is not the root of all evil, but all kinds of evil and others. Anyway, if you said true on any of those, you got it wrong. <laughs> well, today, we're going to have a little bit of fun, a little bit of fun, but looking at kind of a, a twist on our series things we think are in the Bible, but aren't. Because sometimes there are things that are really in us that are ingrained, and we think they're true, and if we dig into God's Word, we realize they're not true. And some of those are no big deal, but some can have real effects on our lives and on the church and on our mission and what God might have us do. Uh, when I was right out of college, I was blessed to be uh, in a men's group with people from, I think, five different countries, which was really cool because we get together and we start talking, start talking about God and the Bible, and I think I've shared this story before, uh, but it started, things started coming out. Somebody would say something, and the others, like, what? You believe that? That's not in the Bible. Yeah, right? And we start looking, and then there was me, this, the American, oh, this is true, and then them, is it? And we had to actually open up the Bible because coming from different cultures and different traditions forced us to go, what's actually in the Bible? And it was really helpful to realize there's some things I just believe, but when I start looking at the words, like, ooh, that might be my tradition or my Americanness. So we're going to look at two main things today, two main things that we most, I think, Christians think are in the Bible or think are true, but aren't, and we're going to pepper some other ones in just for fun. So uh, here's another false one. People become angels when they die. No, angels are angels. They're different. Humans are humans. In fact, the Bible teaches that people, that 
Jesus' followers at some point will, will actually judge angels. So that's unique. Um, demons torture people in hell. Nope. <laughs> nope, that comes from Dante's Inferno, a book where then they, they wrote, did all these paintings and whatever, and if you've been to Italy, you've seen the paintings of, of demons. And No, no, actually hell is created for the demons, and non-believers will end up being there as well. So there's just a couple. But here's the one I want to talk about. The first one. The church building is God's house. Maybe you don't believe that, but maybe there's a piece of you that does, right? That, oh, we're going to God's house. Or people will talk about it. We're in the building. Oh, this is God's house. And so here, make sure you act different. You can cuss out there all you want, but don't cuss in God's house, right? You can drink all you want, but don't bring alcohol into the church because the church is God's house. We're going to call this the holy place myth. The holy place myth. Why? And we're going to look at a couple things. Why do we believe it? What's the danger in believing it? And what's the truth? So why do we believe the holy place myth? There's a lot of reasons. Uh, ever watched a movie? <laughs> right? Or, or a TV show? Anytime people are in need or what, and they go to a church, it's the church is the destination. Right? So we see it all the time in the movies. They go to church to find God, to meet with God. Often it's a priest there and there's something holy, all this stuff. Like that's the place that you go. Um, or tradition. Look back at uh, the Jews. So Christianity has really fulfilled Judaism, and the Jews did have a temple. They did have a place where God was uniquely present, where they would go to meet with him. When God brought the Jews out of Egypt, right, he was present with them uniquely in the cloud, in the fire, um, in, an, in a place called the tabernacle, right? They made the Ark of the Covenant, and that's where God was. Then they built a temple, and they had a holy of holies in the temple where they put this Ark of the Covenant with a great veil between that only a priest could go in one time a year. So... God was uniquely present there, and people would journey to the temple to worship God. And so through history, you know, we have the Reformation and all that, right? Um, but before that, you look at the buildings. Maybe you've traveled to Europe, and you look at the, the church buildings, the cathedrals. They're amazing. Um, and the church didn't have buildings until probably the third century, right? It was a few hundred years of Christianity before we ever even had buildings because uh, it was illegal mostly to be a Christian. Well, once we could have buildings, they started building church buildings, and some of them are amazing. And unfortunately, if you look at the history, some of them were built not for the glory of God, but for the glory of whoever built it, right? Of look how ornate and whatever I could build it. But it was built to point to God the spires, those are on purpose. They're, they're pointing up. When you walk in, giant arches, all these things to make you look up. Why did Michelangelo paint on the ceiling? And all, why do they? To make you look up. So the whole point of those buildings, it's really great to, to declare the glory of God. And they became the destination, right? God must be uniquely present there because look at this. And, you know, look at all the art. Look at everything that's here. And so this has kind of gone on into today, right? The tradition of dressing up for church, which isn't a bad thing, but it's kind of like there's something unique about that building. Or we talk about the altar, right? This, we even just sang about it, right? I build my altar here. That's not bad. That's good. But the altar was the place that the Jews would go to offer sacrifices, the pre, right? The altar to go meet with God. Here in that song, if you noticed, we said, I build my altar here. Well, where, it's wherever, right? We can meet with God wherever. But here's that first myth is that there is a special holy place. What's the danger, right? Who, who cares? 
Well, the danger, and this is a Larry Osborne quote, says the holy place myth fosters a false dichotomy between the secular and the spiritual by leading us to believe that there are some places where God hangs out and a lot of others he seldom frequents. I really appreciate that quote. I have seen this in my life, this idea that God is uniquely wholly present here. So we have to go here, but he's not here. And so I can do whatever I want, or he doesn't care what I do, or whatever. So I live like the world there, and then maybe pretend when I come into this building. I can cheat on my taxes out there, right? It's as if our life is a house full of different rooms, and God just gets one room, right? And we'll visit that sometimes, but then we'll leave it. Um, and then we can go, again, cheat on our taxes, cheat on a test, go wherever we want online, just go down the list. You know, God's not part of that. This secular, sacred divide, which in the Bible doesn't exist, right? And this is where I think this matters because, and maybe you've talked to people, I am a teacher and I'm a Christian. Well, if you're a Christian, a Jesus follower and a teacher, you are a Christian teacher. If you are a businessman, businesswoman, and a Christian, you are a Christian businessman, businesswoman. I mean, go down the list. If you're a student, you're not a student and a Christian. You're a Christian student, meaning you belong to God wherever, all the time, and God can be present anywhere, all the time. So there's, there's the danger of it. It's, it's creating compartments in our lives, right? God is not here, but he is here, and so I'm going to behave differently. What's the truth? Well, turn in your Bible to page 1079, 1079. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at some other passages, but we're going to look at Ephesians 2, and then a little bit later, Ephesians 4. But Ephesians 2, we're going to be in verse 19, I think. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, but again, it's page 1079, if you're using the Bible in front of you, page 1079. And we're asking, right, so if the church is not God's house, what's the, does God have a house? Is there a place where God uniquely dwells, or is he just equal everywhere? And obviously, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere, but is he uniquely present anywhere? Ephesians 2, 19 to 22 says this. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple to the Lord, in whom you are also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The difficult part is picking which verses in this whole passage, right? Maybe later you can read all of Ephesians 2 because it's kind of all in there. I just chose these to pull this out. But what did it say? It ends with, you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So according to this passage, where is God's dwelling place on earth? You, <laughs> me, the church, right? The, the body, the group, all of us, in you individually, but in us uniquely together. God's dwelling place is his people. So is God uniquely present here when we gather on Sunday to worship? Yes, but it's not because of the building. It's because of you, right? It's because of us. So we could be out in the parking lot. We could be in a field. We could be in somebody's house, right? Same thing. It's not the building. It's the people, right? The word for the church is ecclesia. 
in, in Scripture, right? Ek kaleo, it's, it means called out ones, those called out from the world for a purpose, right? We're to be in the world still, living, but we are called out uniquely God's people and his dwelling place. What does that mean? That means for people to meet with God, they don't need to come to a church. They need to go to God's people. They need to be among God's people. This also means that you, when you're out in the world and you're rubbing shoulders with non-believers, guess what? They are in the presence of God. Now, don't get a big head. You're not God. But God is present in you, right? And so his idea throughout the, the entire scriptures, you see God through whatever his dwelling place is to make himself known to the world. The temple was really supposed to be a beacon to the whole world, not just the Jews. Now that's what it is in us. We are making him known to the rest of the world. That's cool. So a couple of us are together and a non-believer is um, with us, right? They are, again, in God's presence as we're gathered together. And that should show in the way that we live and the way that we speak and the things that we do. Why else does this matter, right? No holy place... We are God's holy place. That means we should look at ourselves differently. 1 Corinthians, this will be on the screen. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20 says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Maybe you've heard that before, right? That your body is the temple of God. It is. But have you gone all the way? What is a temple? The temple was the place where God dwelt, where people could go to to meet with God. We are his temple. And maybe you, like me, have heard this mostly used when somebody's smoking, right? Why are you smoking? Your body's the temple of God. Am I the only one that's heard that? Well, s scripturally... I mean, maybe you can argue health reasons, you know, take care of your body for it, right? But scripturally, it doesn't use it that way. Scripturally, it uses it for sexual sin, right? Sexual immorality is, is in your body. Every other sin is outside the body. So is all sin equal? No. <laughs> the penalty for all sin is the same, right? Eternal separation from God in hell. The penalty for all sin is the same, but not all sin is the same. I mean, we can all admit lying and murder, right? One is maybe a little bit worse than the other. Sexual sin is inside the body, which is a unique affront to God if we are his temple. So sexual sin, again, the penalty isn't different eternally. Earthly penalty is different. I think we can all attest to that, right? But the idea there, sexual immorality, and, and biblically, sexual immorality, those words, it means any sex outside of one man, one woman within marriage. So that's how the Bible defines sex. That's how God designed it. One man, one woman within marriage. Anything else, anything else is sexual immorality. We can go to other you know, passages to pull out this one and this one and this one, but that refers to all of it. So meaning we are the temple. We should view ourselves different, right? We are sacred, even our bodies. Our bodies are, are holy and unique and God is dwelling here and so we should treat them differently and being his temple, we are representing him to the rest of the world. So, should we come to this building? Absolutely, <laughs> right? And if they 
if it burns down and they don't let us, then we should gather somewhere else, right? Or we should go to another church to get whatever it is. We need to be getting together, right? Scripture is clear. Do not forsake the gathering together. We should come together every single week or as often as possible because we are designed to worship. God wants us to worship. He tells us to worship. And again, there's something unique about us being together. So we should get together. Maybe you've heard, I don't need church. Nature's my church. No, it's not. Is God uniquely present out there? Yeah, he's everywhere and nature is awesome. But you can't go do church by yourself in the forest. You can't, right? We're designed to do it together. Now, if we all go to the forest together, that'd be cool. Like, <laughs> let's do that and get together. But we are to gather to worship because, again, we are, we are the temple. All right, we're going to move on to the next one. Um, did angels sing at Jesus' birth? No. I always thought they did. In fact, nowhere in Scripture do you see angels singing. Weird. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> Here's the next one. Are pastors and clergy uniquely holy? <laughs> no yeses? <laughs> Right? Yeah, there's the question, or, or the statement. Pastors and clergy are uniquely holy. We call this the holy man myth. This is a myth. This is very popular in the church. Whether you know it or not, it might be a little bit under the surface. But this is the idea that pastors and clergy somehow have a more direct line to God. Therefore, clergy are maybe intermediaries between us normal people and God. Why do we believe this? Right? And maybe you're sitting there, I don't believe it. Well, do you? Right? Why do others believe this then? Well, I think, again, you watch the movies and whatever, and people are always going to the church to meet with somebody who has a better relationship with God than them, somebody who can be their intermediary. Right? In the Old Testament, before Jesus came, it was true. The Jews would go to the temple and the priests would take their sacrifice and offer it to God and offer prayers on behalf of the people. They were intermediaries. Right? This was something that, that they did do on purpose. That's how God designed it. That's why the temple was there. And so we, we have this you know, kind of tradition of it. Um, and by the way, it's also popular in the church itself among pastors themselves. A lot of them think they're something special. They think they have some kind of unique authority. And I've watched this, people who are just normal people, then they become clergy and something changes overnight. All of a sudden they know everything and they have some authority. Or maybe you've heard this, the pastor's the anointed one. I, I heard this somewhat recently and I talked to Paul, uh, Paul who's not here today so I can say anything I want about him. Um, <laughs> But Paul grew up more traditional Baptist, and as we thought, he's like, oh, that's a huge belief, mainly an older traditional Baptist, that the pastor is God's anointed for the church, meaning nobody can come against God's anointed. Well, that's when God called, or when God set up a king, the first king he gave to Israel was Saul, and Saul was called God's anointed, and, and David who was the first real good king of Israel, right? Saul's trying to kill David. Several times David could have killed Saul, right? Maybe you remember the stories. He sneaks down while Saul's sleeping, right? And he, and he takes a spear or something and sticks it right next to him uh, and cuts off a piece of his cloak. And another time in a cave when he's relieving himself, he cuts off a piece of his cloak. And, and later he's like, hey, Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Because who am I to raise my hand against God's anointed? Well, people have taken that and morphed it and... Bleh, a pastor is God's anointed, so you can't come against them. 
They, they're always right. They always know what's best, right? There's danger in that. What is the danger in this? Well, here's, I think, the big one. How big is the average American church? How many, how many people? About 80. 80 people is the average American church size. Why? Because, and I think studies show this, because that's about how many people one person can shepherd and lead if they work themselves to the bone. That, that's it. Because pastors think, oh, it's all up to me, and people think, it's all up to you, right? And then, that, and then that's it. And so the pastor gets worn out, and then people are underutilized. Again, here's a great quote, I think, from Larry Osborne. Speaking of the holy man myth, he says, it cripples a church because it overburdens pastors and underutilizes the gifts and anointing of everyone else. It mistakenly equates leadership gifts with superior spirituality. I really like that, right? Leadership is a gift. Teaching is a gift. But those gifts don't equate to character or even spiritual maturity, right? Just look at the history of even the last 40 years of pastors who were very maybe charismatic, great teachers, great leaders, and great moral failings because their character wasn't in line with the position or whatever they're gifting. Those are just spiritual gifts, right? To be used, absolutely, but it doesn't make that person any closer to God. They're not holier. Again, maybe you're thinking, I've never believed this, but a lot of people, again, it might be somewhat subtle right under the surface. Like, okay, the pastor's something special, so if I can get close to the pastor, I'm something special, right? If I can have that unique relationship or something's happening in life, I really need a pastor from the church to come deal with it because they have that authority and unique whatever. We have intentionally at Common Ground tried to avoid that by doing things the way we do with groups and group leaders. And so our group leaders, these men and women leading groups, are spiritually gifted shepherds and leaders. And, and so that's kind of our design to spread the load out, to serve each other better, and to lift up and, again, raise up the, the, the gifting of everyone. You know, we've had, uh, we've had people leave Common Ground because of this, right? Because they have this holy man myth, and we're pretty intentional to, to kind of knock that down. They're like, well, I really want that. Well, no, I'm pretty passionate about this because I really... I'm desperate to see God move in a unique way, right? The, the percentage of Jesus followers in our area hasn't gone up in, who knows, decades and decades and decades. Why not? How can we change that? I think the one thing we can do to change that is if all of us realize what we're called to and we step into it, I think we'll see great things. More marriages healed, right? More kids not going to foster care or more foster family. I mean, just go down the list of what that will do to our area if each of us kind of steps up and owns our role. Because what's the truth? Matthew 27, 50 to 51. Again, this is just a little snippet, but this is Jesus on the cross. Remember what I told you about the temple and the Holy of Holies and the veil that separated it. Matthew 27, 50 to 51. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When Jesus died on the cross, right on the hill of Golgotha, when he died as a sacrifice for our sins, there was an earthquake. It was dark. I mean, it was pretty wicked, the things happening. And one thing happened in the temple. At that moment, things shook and the veil tore in two spooky. If you were there, that would have been very scary because anybody that would go into that area would probably die immediately. 
In fact, there's stories in the Old Testament of the, the Ark of the Covenant, right? They're moving it, and they're told, don't you touch it or you'll die. And, they're, and it's on a cart, and it starts to tip, and a guy's like, oh, no, it's tipping. And he touches it, and he drops dead. So God is very serious about this, this Ark and, and the holy, this place. Well, the veil tore in two, and this veil was, was sewn together, and it, it could not tear, right? I believe it was about this thick. It was not going to tear. God tore it. He was saying something on purpose. No longer do you have to go through somebody to get to me. No longer do you have to go to a place to get to me. This new covenant we have with God through Jesus Christ gives us direct access to him. The veil was torn. Jesus, when he was looking at the temple at one time, he said, look at this temple, you know, and, and oh, it's so great. He's like, well, this is going to be torn down. We're like, what? No way. He said, yep, this, not one stone is going to be left on another. The temple was not needed after Jesus. This happened in AD 70. Maybe you know the, the history. Rome, right, they conquered Jerusalem. They attacked it. They went into the temple. They burned it. And all the gold in the temple melted and got between the cracks of all the rocks. And so they tore it apart to get to that gold that had melted and hardened in the cracks. And so not one stone was left on another in the temple. It's gone. I mean, if you go there now, there's the Wailing Wall, which is the foundation. You know, that part still exists. But what Jesus said was true. In AD 70, it was gone why? Because we no longer needed that place. We no longer needed a person. Why, though, did we so quickly, I mean, within the next hundred years, start having priests that we would go to to confess? And again, not everybody did this, right? But, but you know, pastors and clergy who think, I have the, the authority to forgive sins. Oh, my goodness. No, you don't. Only Jesus, and Jesus said, only God can forgive sins, right? And God reserves that authority for himself, with this new covenant, we have direct access to God. 1 Peter 2.9. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. So if there is a priesthood anymore, you're a priest. Have you ever thought about that? If there was a need for a priesthood, you are one. Every Jesus follower is one. There is no hierarchy of holiness in the church. Again, is there leadership? Yes. Do we need role? Yes, we do. But those people are not uniquely special or have a unique access to God at all. Look back at Ephesians where we were. Ephesians 2, 19, we already read this one, but I'm going to read it again. It says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. If you believe in Jesus, you believe he died on the cross, rose from the dead, the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you're his temple, and you are a citizen of heaven or a saint. So again, we went, oh, that person is a saint. Biblically, we're all saints. If, I mean, you're looking around, you're like, not that one, but... <laughs> But biblically, if you belong to Jesus, you are a saint. You are a saint. You are a priest. Flip the page over to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. What is the role of a pastor? What is the role of clergy? If they're not the person we need to go through to get to God, what, what point are they, right? What's, what's the use? Look at Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and that, that word shepherd is pastor, or where we get it, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body 
of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. I love this passage. Right? It's laying out the body. That's every Jesus follower who, is, who are uniquely gifted. That means you. You have a unique gift and role that God has called to you within the church. So what are the leadership gifts for? We saw those. They are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So again, you're called a saint, and now you're called a minister. Right? So, so part of my role, a pastor's role, is to equip. You see here it goes through, through teaching so that we won't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Why do we spend so much time looking at God's word every Sunday? So that we can be confident in God's word. So that as you go through life and you hear things, you're like, I know God's word. That's not true. I know God's word. That is true. Whatever it is, that we are knowledgeable, but then also living it out. Again, shepherds help lead and guide, but not to be the person up front so that everybody else is using what God has given them as a minister. Every Jesus follower is a saint and a minister. Is this new to you? <laughs> right? Or, or, or you feel this? It, are you feeling some weight? Wait a minute. <laughs> I'm a saint. I'm God's dwelling place on earth. I'm a minister. Man, it's so much easier just to give money to a church and let them do the professional ministry. Right? That's easier to write a check and let somebody else do the work. And we often in the church, we believe this. I, I spoke to an elder at a church recently whose pe their pastor was old and, and he moved on. And, you know, that, it wasn't an unhealthy thing. It was just time for them to move on um, and retire. And that was okay. And they haven't found another one. And a lot of people have left. They're like, this isn't what we signed up for. We need somebody to do the ministry for us. And this elder was like, oh, what have we done wrong? That, that they need this person to, to do it for them. No, they've all left because they want somebody else rather than, oh, now we get to step up. Sometimes the best thing for a group, a church, is for the pastor to go. I've seen it before, a church where the pastor got worn out, you know, and, and he had to move out. I was, I was in this church. I was brand new to this church. Um, I'd only met the pastor a couple times, and he got chronic fatigue, something. Um, well, then the others stepped up, right? Elders stepped up and started teaching. Um, I was a young man. It's like, well, okay, elders are now doing this. Who's going to teach adult Sunday school? Well, they got some young kid to start. To, I, I was doing that. Um, it gave the rest of us opportunities to use some gifting, to train, to learn. It was really healthy in many ways. And I think that's what we can learn as we break down this holy place myth and this holy man myth. We realize we are responsible. You are responsible. Right? How come so often we have these, these failings of these leaders and the churches just crumble? Because it was about that person. How about we get over you know, putting men and women on pedestals and then we get into God's word, we understand it, we go to live it out so that you, as hopefully as we up here are, are teaching you God's word, you're also looking, engaging. Is this true or not? And you're not following the teacher. Hopefully this is helping you follow Christ. So that when a leader, and this happens so often, when a leader starts to get off, the people, because we are all saints and we see it and go, mm, we're drifting here, right? We're all responsible. 
Those failings of these leaders, they're on the leaders, but they're also on those who saw, right, and who knew the truth and, and just kind of ignored it. We are all responsible. And here's the biggest for me, I believe, is the mission, right? What has God called us to do? What is the mission of the church? By the way, it's not just to do church. <laughs> it's not together, get together and be good. We are supposed to do this. This is very important. We're made to worship. We're going to do it for eternity. But we have a mission, and we have it on the wall over here. We say it this way. Our mission is connecting people to the abundant life only possible through an abiding relationship with Jesus. That's our mission. Right? Jesus came. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. Why? So we could be forgiven, reconciled to God, and enjoy an abundant life? I love that. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. God wants people to get over their sin, right? To work through it, not because he's a, a killjoy, because that's best for us. And how do we get that? By abiding in him, by growing in our relationship with him. That's why we exist here as a church, to help get closer to him, to enjoy this abundant life, and to pass it on, right? So our vision, we had that on the wall here. We are fueling a movement of God's people surrendered to his mission wherever he places us. That's what we're trying to accomplish so that we're fueling a movement. Like all of us, where are you already, right? Are you a teacher? Are you a public servant? Are you a contract? Where are you? God has placed you there. He's present in you. You're his minister. And I, I picture us as like little flames. He set you there to be, to be a flame to kind of set things on fire, you know, in a healthy way, not like a California wildfire. Um, in a, in a healthy, right, the fire of the Holy Spirit, the, the power of God to change, to bring life wherever he places us. This is how God is going to change. Yeah, I know there's, we, last week we talked about the book of Revelation, um, and if you missed it, you might want to listen to it. It was uh, pretty great. Um, but but we, sometimes we study those things and we think, oh, everything's just going to get worse and worse and worse, and we just expect it. And, and, and things might get worse, yes, but I also have the hope that I think we can see great numbers of people come to God. We can see uh, great numbers of people turn their life over to Christ as life is difficult to say, no, Jesus is the only way. But it's not going to come by us just sitting and, and watching the professionals do worship. It's going to come by us realizing we are saints, we are ministers, and God is present in us wherever we go. What if every Jesus follower in, in these valleys around us stepped up to this and owned the responsibility? I'm a minister and I'm gifted. What if we, not just here, but the other churches, and I've told you this before, I believe things are changing. And some people hear and go, uh, but there is more cooperation. There, there is a, a softening of feelings between churches in a very, very good way. And I am excited to see what God will do as all the churches kind of soften. And what if all of us did this and every church starts to grow? You know, if you've been here very long, you know that we as a church have wanted to, to plant churches. We haven't wanted just to become a mega church. Our goal has been, to, you know, to spread, to plant in order to reach more people. And every effort we've made, God's kind of like, no. Well, so now one of our strategies, I guess, with that is, okay, well, there's a bunch of churches around. What if we can partner better and help in whatever way we can with some of those? And, and we've done some of that. You know, we, we've sent people to help lead worship at other churches. We've partnered. What if all the other churches can, can get healthy and grow? That's kingdom success. You know, and so for you, where are you, right? What are you called to? Do you realize how important you are to God and to what he wants to do? Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ. I, I do thank you that your word is, is pretty clear, God. And, and there are many other things that we believe that, that aren't in Scripture. But, God, these can be destructive. 
um, as we think that there's a special place you are because we think there's other places you're not. Uh, whereas you see us everywhere and, and we are your temple, God, wherever we go. And God, the idea of, of, of holy people that we need to go to, God, I, I beg that we would realize how valuable we are. God, that, that none, none are uniquely holy just because of a role or whatever, but God, that we are saints, we are ministers, and you want to use us for your glory wherever we are. God, we love you. We are thankful. Uh, we're also thankful that, that for eternity we're going to get to serve you. I think we're going to use those gifts and do things for eternity for your glory, and we, we cannot wait for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we move to worship, uh, we're going to take communion. And we have three stations, one here, one here, one back there. Uh, Gluten-free is back there. Um, we do it this way on purpose. We do the Lord's Supper every two weeks. And we do it on purpose to get up and move around. We know it gets crowded. We know we rub shoulders and sometimes we trip and spill. But we do that on purpose. And the reason is we, the people, we are called to worship, right? We are not called to watch people worship. We are called to worship. And so just this movement gives us uh, an opportunity to participate. It gives you the impetus to take it and pray with whoever you're with or pray alone rather than us, you know, praying for you and doing all that, that you would pray, that you would confess sin, uh, that you would let the Holy Spirit reveal if there's anything in you not in line with him that you need to adjust, right, before you go take it. Maybe there's a relationship you need to reconcile before you take it, but this is our opportunity to participate in worship, remembering Jesus' death, which brings us forgiveness, remembering his resurrection that guarantees our eternal life, and looking forward to his return when he will set all things right.